Um, I f there's one thing I forgot to mention, and I want to stick it in now, and that is in the midst of all the ministry tables, the table right at the back here is the missions table, but there's also a display on there and information about our next mission trip next spring to the Bahamas. And there's just, to me, God is amazing. Um, after the last mission trip to North South Carolina for hurricane relief, um, some of our folks talked to Praying Pelican Missions and said, is there an area that sort of gets neglected that we could go to to really make a difference? And, of course, this was long before a hurricane. And a Praying Pelican actually said, you know, the Bahamas actually needs help. Everybody thinks of it to go there and they go to the resorts and all that, but nobody much goes there to help all the poor people in the Bahamas. And so our folks said, okay, we'll go there. Well, of course, now the hurricane has gone through and their need is quadrupled exponentially. But I just think I'm always interested in how God works things out and moves things around and he schedules things. So um, do stop by. If you've never stretched yourself to go on a mission trip, I would heartily recommend it. Um, I think just about everybody around who's gone on a trip has said, I was scared, it was wild, and I'm glad I went. So do check that out as you look it around. Okay, today's sermon, walking through Corinthians. Let me ask you, let's just create this hypothetical situation, okay? You're a parent, and you've got a kid. We'll say late grade school, middle school, maybe early high school. And they've come home for supper, and they brought a few friends with them. And you're sitting around the table, and it's a pretty normal meal, conversation going on. And then your child says, you know, we really got that kid today. There was that new kid at school. Man, we just got him good. And the friends with it, yeah, it was awesome. They were crying, and we just hammered that new kid. Now, as the parent, you're sitting there. What are you thinking? What are you going to say? How do you handle this? Do you not go across the table and grab their throat? I mean, what, 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 what do you do at that point? Well, that's exactly where Paul found himself. When the letter of 1 Corinthians was written, remember, Paul is on a different continent. He's over in Turkey, but he's had people, Christians, have visited the church. And he's gotten letters. So he's both gotten letters and firsthand reports of what's going on in the church. And about chapter 5, he gets to one of the things that's going on that is just causing Paul's head to explode. He cannot believe this is going on in the church. And we're going to look at that today and hopefully learn some lessons that apply to us today. So let's first of all understand what was happening. So it's 1 Corinthians 5, and we're going to look in 5 and 6. So keep your finger in those two chapters. But Paul starts off chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans won't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud of this. Well, we need to stop for a second and sort of unpack that to understand what's going on and why. The literal thing that Paul is saying is that somebody in the church is now living with his stepmother. We don't know what happened to the dad, but the dad is now gone, 
and the stepmother and the stepson are now living together. But I want you to see what Paul says at the beginning of, of verse 2. And you, the church, or at least a group in the church, are proud of this. And of course, Paul is saying even the pagans wouldn't tolerate this, and here you are proud of this. How can this be? Well, I need to give you a little background because there's actually a reasonable explanation for this that makes it not qu quite as just bizarre as it sounds. Not that it wasn't bizarre. But Paul is writing to the Greeks in ancient uh, Greece and a guy named Plato that you've probably heard of, one of the greatest Greek philosophers long before Jesus, had come up with this idea that there really are two worlds, and we would agree with him. Plato said there's a spiritual world. Our spirits are there. That's where the divine is and all of that. And there's a physical world. So far, okay, we get that. But then what Plato went on to say is, Everything in the physical world is bad. It doesn't last. It's broken. That's where all the evil and pain comes from in the physical world. And everything good is in the spiritual world. All the good virtues, uh, all the good is in the spiritual world. The bad is in the physical world. That came to be called in philosophy dualism. It's either good or bad. It's physical or it's spiritual. Well, what happened is Christianity came along and started preaching this good news of Jesus, but in this good news, where is the ultimate good? In heaven with God. And so anyway, the Christians got into dualism and the two sort of came together and created a heresy. That's a false teaching that became extremely popular. And for probably the first 200 years, 300 years of Christianity, it was one of the biggest battles in the church. It came to be called Gnosticism. That doesn't really matter. But it really became sort of goofy because it produced two extremes, both of which were dead wrong. One extreme said, well, if the spiritual world is what's good and the physical world is what's bad and the physical world isn't going to last, it's all going to be burned up and it's going to go away, then what we do in the physical world doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what's in the spiritual world. So that means we sort of get a get-out-of-jail-free pass. I can do anything I want in the physical world because all this stuff is temporary. It, it is worthless. And the only thing that matters is what I do in the spiritual world. And so then you had some pretty bizarre things going on including people living in a sexual life that is without boundaries and borders. And they would then say, look how enlightened I am. Look how spiritual I am. I'm sleeping with my mother-in-law. Or whatever bizarre thing was going on. And a bunch of the Christians would say, wow, you are enlightened. Look how spiritually knowledgeable you are. And Paul's like, you're kidding me, right? That's just crazy. Well, I want to talk about the other extreme because we actually are going to see both in Corinth. Not in this chapter and not today. But as you think, unrelated, physical, spiritual, the other extreme also became taught. And that was we should have as little to do with the physical world as we can because it's all evil. 
In fact, the, the teaching of the Gnostics was that if you have a baby, you have captured a part of the spiritual world and imprisoned it in a physical body. And there's nothing worse you could do than to rip part of the spiritual world and capture it in the physical body for a lifetime. And so you had people who were married who would never have physical intercourse and they would just be engaged forever. And we're going to see that in a few chapters in Corinthians. So it was pretty crazy and it produced some pretty crazy thinking because there was suddenly, in a sense, no right and wrong. And at first you say, why in the world do we need to study this? But then we think maybe we need to study this today. And most of all, we need to study Paul's response. Because to Paul, right and wrong was obvious. This isn't a gray area. So turn back to chapter 5 and let's keep reading. So Paul has talked about what's going on and then he said, and you're proud of this. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I am there in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul wants them to understand that there is no doubt that this is wrong. This isn't okay. It does matter. In fact, they should be mourning. But I want you to remember part of why this is a struggle is the city of Corinth because there was no right and wrong in Corinth. We talked about that earlier. Corinth was a city. It was a seaport. The goddess, the patron deity of the city was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. There was an enormous temple on the mountain right overlooking Corinth full of over a thousand prostitutes, they estimate. And that was how you worshipped the goddess Aphrodite. Well, you can imagine the impact that had on the whole culture of the whole city. And Corinth was so immoral, so without boundaries in any way of right and wrong, that the very name Corinth had become an adjective. We found it in use throughout the Mediterranean where people would say you're acting like a Corinthian when you were sort of out of control. When there were no boundaries in your life, they'd say, oh, you're, you're, you're being a Corinthian. It was that bad. Can you, I, you know, I think back, can you imagine, let's go plant a church in Corinth. But we do that. You know, I have a good friend who planted a church in Las Vegas. And it's having a huge impact. But when I heard where he was going, I was like, really? You're serious? And he did go and had a huge impact, and so did Paul. He went to Corinth. He walked right into the face of the lion and said, we're going to plant a church here. And he did, and it had a huge impact, but it was still, that church was still in that culture. And now some of that had come into the congregation of what is right and what's wrong, what's okay, is everything okay. Turn over to chapter 6. And one of the things that Paul will do in 1 Corinthians, and you've got to sort of watch for it because it can be confusing. At times, Paul is quoting the bad guys, the wrong attitude. And it's not him, it's not Paul saying it. It's saying, I know this is what's being said in the church. 
And we have that example right here. In verse 12, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say. But Paul's response, but not everything is beneficial. Again, I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, let's just go back and look at what Paul says in his argument there. The first one, the, this claim, we're free now. We're free as Christians. We have grace. What we do in this physical world doesn't matter. But Paul says, wait a minute. Let's be honest here. It does matter. Because not everything we do is beneficial. Not everything we do builds ourselves up. Not everything we do builds up others. And we have to consider that it it's not true that anything goes. Nothing matters. Then he comes back again. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And I think especially in the culture of Corinth, he realized there were all kinds of things we do that start to control our lives. In our modern world, we call them addictions. But he saw that happening in Corinth. And whatever that addiction might be, there were all kinds of things. And you might say, well, I'm free to do anything. Paul says, yeah, and how is that taking control of your life? It does matter, and you need to say no, because if you don't, it is going to get you by the throat, and you're going to lose control of your life because of this thing you're free to do. And then in verse 13, that food for the stomach, the stomach for food, that's part of that physical, spiritual and that argument, all this physical is going away. So what does it matter what we do? God gave me a stomach. I like to eat. The body's going. Who cares? Let's eat. And of course, that applies to all kinds of desires we can have. And Paul says, wait a minute. You have missed a fundamental concept. And that is that your body does matter. Your body has significance because it has been given to God when we become Christians. We're all His, including our body. In fact, that body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because that's where the Holy Spirit resides. And it does matter. And there is a right and wrong, and we need to hear that. Look at verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now remember, a temple is where the God lives. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. So that's his first argument, saying what you do with your physical body has a huge spiritual impact. Because that physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God gave him to you. He's living in your body. And whatever you do in that body, the Holy Spirit is right there with you. Then his second argument is, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. As Christians, we are not our own. We've given ourselves to Christ because of what Christ did for us. He purchased us with his blood. We're his now. We have died to our old selves. That's what we talk about in baptism. And we rise to live a new life. It's Christ living in us. 
we're living for Christ. And Paul says for both of those reasons, what we do in our physical bodies matters. I think the issue that this raises for us is what to do when someone does wrong in the church. Because if we understand what Paul was writing about, there was this behavior going on in the church that was wrong. Paul in his sarcasm says, even the pagans see it's wrong. Wake up. But then, of course, the challenge becomes, what do you do about it? And I realized as I was trying to look at these passages and say, what does, God, what do you want to say to us today? I think one of the things we need to realize is that we struggle when someone's doing wrong, especially as Christians. I think it's harder for us. We hate conflict. We hate conflict. I've never met a person yet that has said, I love conflict. I can't wait. I've, I've met some angry people who just seem they're ready for the next conflict. But in general, I've never ran, ran into a person who says, I just can't wait for the next conflict. And most of us are the very opposite. We will go to great lengths to avoid conflict. Uh, one of the tests, that they, they, there's all kinds of assessments of our attitude towards conflict. And one of the assessments I've taken gives you four options, but option one of the four options is you're a tortoise. Because if you even smell conflict, the head and all hands and arms just goes inside. And it's just like, I want nothing to do with conflict. And I think that's pretty common among Christians. We don't like it. We'll avoid it if at all possible. It's like, I'm not seeing this. It's not here. I don't want to talk about it. We see somebody doing wrong. It's like, whoa. At most, we may talk to somebody else about it. <laughs> Do you realize what they are doing? But of course, neither of those approaches help anyone, do they? Doing nothing about wrongdoing doesn't help anybody. The wrongdoing just continues. And talking to others about a third party doing wrong, it just makes it worse. Because now gossip comes into play and other people know about it and things are made worse and worse and worse. And that's part of Paul's challenge in all of this. If you go back with me... Um, to verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5. So when you are assembled, and I'm there with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Uh, let's just stop there for a second. I, it's almost like Paul says, I know this is going to be hard for you, but so think about it this way, when, when you're all gathered together, so you've got each other, and believe me, I'm going to be there in spirit helping you, and the power of Jesus is going to be there helping you, so we've got three things in lined up here, now handle it. Take that tough step of addressing that person and putting them out of the fellowship. But I want you to hear Paul's purpose in putting them out of the fellowship. In verse 5, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh 
so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul is not writing this person off who's doing wrong. He's not saying put them out of the fellowship to just exclude them. He's saying so that they can live in this lifestyle they've chosen with their sinful flesh, which is how Paul views the flesh. And Paul's hope is that in that lifestyle, they will finally wake up and say, I am ruining my life. These desires have taken me in the wrong direction and that that person will eventually repent and come back and be saved for eternity. He's trying to do it for redeeming them, not just punishing them. But he is saying you need to address this issue. It's tough. You're going to need the Spirit's help. I'm going to be with you in spirit. I know it's going to be tough, but you need to do this. Because one of the things that Paul is concerned about is that sin is contagious. And I think we need to hear that today. When we live in a culture that says, eh, don't judge each other, everything's okay, we're reluctant to take stands. We're reluctant to speak out and say, that's wrong. I don't agree with you. I think that's a mistake. And yet Paul says, you need to understand what's at, what's at risk here. Here's what he says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? That's the danger of sin. When we tolerate it, when we say it's okay, when our kids watch us saying it's okay or we're not going to say anything about it, there's a message that says, I guess this is okay. And sin is like a virus. It can spread. And Paul knows that, and he's concerned about that. And then in verse 11, he says this, But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, idolater, slander, drunkard, swindler. Don't even eat with such people. That's for our sake, Paul writes verse 11. Because he knows how influential Satan can be. And if we crack a door open a few inches, Satan will take that opportunity. If we tolerate this sin, or if we say this sin doesn't matter, Satan is delighted at that, and he will come in and infect our lives. And we need to be careful about that. Because sin, like a virus, will spread. To me, this story from Corinthians isn't a pleasant story. It's not a fun story. But it is a warning. A warning, I think, especially in our day when, in some ways, we're probably starting to live in a culture that resembles Corinth. We're all experiencing it. We're no longer to say anything is right and wrong. Truth has become relative. You choose your truth. I choose my truth. Um how we parent, how we live our lives, what we each see as right and wrong, we're discouraged from saying anything is right or wrong or we don't agree with something. And I don't think there's in any way, what I'm not trying to say, we're all going to go out and become narrow, judgmental Christians. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help Jesus or what he wants us to do in this world. But going to the other extreme is also wrong 
especially as Paul says, and he, we're not reading the rest of the chapter, he says, I'm not talking about our unchristian neighbors or co-workers. He says, of course, it, and Paul's pretty candid, he says, of course we experience, expect behavior from them that's not moral. That's not what this is about. But he says, what I am writing to is we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to help each other, and part of how we help each other is that we do ask tough questions. Even something simple as, well, what are you doing? Where are you coming from? I, I don't get how you're doing that. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's not about expressing a judgment as it is noticing things and asking honest questions out of caring, compassion. But questions that say, are you sure that's right? Is that what Jesus would want us doing? Those are tough questions, but we need to hear them. I've been doing a new Bible reading plan, a new version from Andy Stanley and his church, and it's called guardrails. I love that analogy. The truth is we need guardrails in life. Guardrails that says, hey, don't go, there's a precipice there. You can fall off. And one of the guardrails we need in life is the courage to say something's wrong when it's wrong. When God's word says, don't do that, we need to hear that. We need those guardrails so that we don't end up in a wreck beside the road with our lives because of what we've done that's sin, that's wrong. Though we never intended to be there, we end up there and then what do we all say? How in the world did that happen? guardrails let's pray father i thank you for this book it's honest and it's real and there are issues in this book that we wrestle with still today two thousand years later i thank you for paul and how you guided him and what he wrote he said some difficult things that wasn't easy for the Corinthians to hear, and maybe it's not easy for us to hear, but it's truth, and we need to hear it. We need guardrails for our lives. So I ask you to help us hear these words, apply them to our own lives, to this church, to wherever we go to church. Father, help us take seriously your guidance, your directions of what's right, and what's wrong, and always hold on to your truth. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.